You yeah. charged up to fuck. You are. And all your little said, cronies will be like that. Well mean. in cash, well in cash. You said this to me, you said that. Well in lad. Hey. Look at the fucking. Look at the fucking. You've stated them. Me. I don't drink. Well, I don't, I'm not charged up. I don't, I, don't drink, I don't drink and I don't touch drugs. You don't what? I don't drink and I don't touch drugs. Neither do I. You'll see. Okay. You get knocked out. Neither do I. Okay. Okay. Guys, we've got a couple of other fights to talk about as well. No. Please, you're going to get fucking battered. I'm telling you. You're not even funny, do you? Look, we could, argue, look, we could argue all day. We could argue all day. But look, all things being equal, that may, may well come into it. But I'm on a completely different level from Cash Alley. I'm a, I'm a different, completely breed. Completely different breed. Welcome back to the number one podcast in a sport that is waiting for one man to find one pen to sign one contract. Like, is there any other aspect of life where the public are so interested in, in one man's decision over whether to take money or not to take money? But the important thing is we're back here. It's Monday Mass again. You know... I'll be your preacher for the next few minutes, maybe 30 or so, I don't know. But it's just useful sometimes to just sweep up on some of the things we didn't catch over the weekend, which was actually a spectacular weekend for British boxing. And I think events like that remind the rest of the world that there's nowhere you'd rather fight where the things are set up correctly. You know, no, no real refing controversies, no judging issues. And maybe that's the upside of having some mismatches on your card is you don't get the refing and the judging issues. Not to, not to wish that upon us as a long-term solution, but the weekend did show that when you take the refing and the judging out the way, British boxing is actually the place to be. But I wanted to touch on Saturday because we've all had a chance to pause and reflect and be grateful that we got the opportunity to find the Siami Khan versus Kell Brook. I think we can all say that whether it happened two days ago, whether it happened five years ago, I don't think there would have been that much difference in terms of intensity and feeling and build-up. I think it's the same fight then as it is now, and they could fight at 50 and it might be pretty much the same. But here's a question that, that I had, and I think Khan and Brook are sort of paragons of this dilemma. Do you stay with the same trainer? Or do you mix and match? Because when you look at Kel, yeah, there have been some periods where Kel's gone elsewhere. You know, Dave was caretaker, trainer for a bit. Uh, John Fuchs, Fuke, he was caretaker, trainer for a bit. But broadly speaking, Kel is Ingle bred, Ingle created, Ingle made. And, and because of that, you wonder whether that consistency of input Knowing where you're going to be training every camp, knowing who's going to be around you every camp, and them having known you from a youngster. Is that the added value? Is that what enables Kel to, to eke out the, the marginal gains you make once you get past 30? You know, there's the small increments. Whereas in contrast, Amir Khan's gone from, I can't even name all of them now, Oliver Harrison, Jorge Rubio, Freddie Roach, I think Joe Goosen was involved. Uh, God, who else? Virgil Hunter. Uh, well, Bomat clearly. And I'm sure I'm missing out on some other people that Amir Khan's worked with as trainers. 
And I don't think they've changed Amir Khan as a fighter. This is the thing. I couldn't tell you what Freddie Roach added, and I couldn't tell you what, what Bomak added, because Amir Khan is Amir Khan. Would Khan have been better off just picking one train and sticking to him? Would he have been better off with Oliver Harrison, God rest his soul? Would he have been better off just saying, actually, once I commit to this Cuban style with, I never know if it was Rubio, Salas, or Pedro Diaz. Let's just say it was Rubio. If I commit to Rubio, is this going to take me to another level? And I think there was too much mixing and matching, and that's a sign that there are too many people in someone's ear. Freddie Roach is never going to fix the Amir Khan deficiencies because Amir is exactly what Freddie loves. You know, front foot guys who are intense and aggressive. And is there a right answer, is there a wrong answer? I don't know. What I do know is Kel's been able to resuscitate his career from life support so many times because of the people around him. There's a genuine love for Kel Brook. You know, we can say what we want about Dom Ingle. He genuinely cares about Kel Brook. Like, I've seen how much the Ingles care about Kel with my own eyes. It's, you know, that Ingle gym was family. And you saw that in fight week. You saw how much people cared about Kel. And there's a value in that. I don't care what anyone says. Like, when you're building your career, there's a value in feeling cared for, loved by someone who wants to see you do your best. When it's a bit more transactional, like you're just going to pay me my 10%, it's different. It's different. They can't give you the same thing. And so I do wonder whether we've resolved that debate about do you stick with the same guy? And therefore it makes it important to, to get that choice right. And I think sometimes guys are lazy and they fall in love with, with brand names. And you've seen prospects do this. They just jump on board with Adam Booth or they jump on board with Tony Sims. And it may not be the right thing for them. And I'm not saying that whether these guys are good or bad trainers. I'm just saying it may not be the right thing for them. Which, which then ties into another issue. And it's this. If you look at Amir Khan, Amir Khan was raised in an amateur gym. Right? Amateur through and through. Barry ABC, amateur through and through. His star reflects that. Amateur through and through. Khan was good at the thing that got you wins in the clicker system. Right? High volume of punches, most of them straight, in and out pretty quick. Kel came up in a professional gym that happened to have an amateur club on the side. It was Unity ABC back then. That's what Kel came up under. So you're walking into a gym and your, your role models are Naz. Your role models are Ryan Rhodes. Um, you go back even earlier because Kel was there around the time of Clifton Mitchell. And, you know, you got Johnny Nelson there. And you got all of these guys cut there. And the, and the thing is, there are loads of other guys that people don't talk about. You know, don't ignore the, the guys like the Smedleys as well, who were all there as well. And so you have this, this kind of coming together of so many different styles and approaches that Kel was able to soak up. And when I heard Spencer Fearon say that Kel Brook doesn't have the Ingle style, I realized Spencer doesn't understand what the Ingle style actually is. The Ingle style is not Naz, and the Ingle style is not Ryan Rhodes, and it's not Johnny Nelson, and it's not Kid Galahad, and it's not Kel Brook. It's all of those guys, because when you distill what unites all of those guys, it's these things. In no order of importance, but one, 
you have an incredible sense of timing and ring awareness. Two, balance and movement are key. Yeah, these, these things are all very important. Yeah, three, you're able to punch from anywhere. Yeah, because it's about mastering your body. You know, that whole balance thing. You can punch from any position and be destructive with it. And four, don't take punches you don't have to. That's probably at the heart of, if you want to, if you really want to classify what ingle boxing is, it's the art of not getting hit, but being able to hit your opponent. Like, you know, when I was there, and I wasn't there long enough to be an expert, but the things I took away from it were your whole body is your defense, not just your arms. And once you think about that, you become more fluid automatically. And I think, I'd say Kel is the most relatable and coachable version of the Ingle style. That's what he is. So to say he's not an Ingle fighter is not true. He's just the most accessible and coachable version of it. You can make people box like Kel Brook. Not Naz. Johnny would be too hard. Kid Galahad, you'd have to have him from when they're really, really young. But Kel, you can. Because Kel took all of those elements... And just made them relevant to who he is as a person and how he's built physically. But he, he's every bit as ingle as anybody else because if you want to see him having a laugh and sparring, you'll see all the flashy stuff. He can do all of that. But in a fight, he knows what works for him. So I didn't really agree when I was hearing him talk about, ah, this isn't the ingle style. It is. Because the ingle style has so many expressions. It's got, you know... Bomber Graham as his genesis, if you want to say that. Then you've got guys like, if you go back in the day, you've got guys like Glenn Rhodes who were able to do it. Um, you know, Clifton Mitchell had elements of that too. All, all of these guys, it's, it's a lineage. But Kel was almost that, that distillation of everything into a version the public could understand and could figure out for themselves. And so, all those experiences that Kel had gave him a far bigger box of tricks, a far bigger set of clubs, to use a golf analogy, than Amir Khan had. And what that means is over time you can flex that, you can bring in new things and take things out. Whatever you need to do, you've got the, the opportunity to adapt. I don't think Khan did. And what we saw on Saturday was, if you're not a young man full of you know, bravery and you know, ignorance and you're almost impervious to getting hurt, that fast raiding style doesn't work. The Khan that fought Alexander, hmm, that, that would have beaten Kelbrook, but that's a young man's style. I think Khan sort of, had a, and I hate to say it because I'm a Khan fan, I think that style sort of died a long time ago for him. But we need to, we need to delve deeper into that because it isn't just a question of Khan got old, I don't think. Because in life, there's always a point when something loses its luster, loses its magic. It can be a relationship. It can be a job. It can be a sports club. It can be anything. There's a point when it feels different. There's a point when you don't feel that you're going forward in the direction you wanted. And maybe you don't show up early to training like you used to. You might not do that extra 100 meter sprint like you used to. You might not do the extra gym sessions in the evening like you used to. 
in a relationship, it might be that the birthday presents get a bit cheaper. The card gets a bit cheaper. You know, hit up the card king for all your card needs, by the way. But you, you, you start to take your foot off the accelerator. And so I've been trying to find that point for Amir Khan. And I think it was almost like the second time the Pacquiao fight should have been made. And it didn't happen. And Amir realized that everything he had been aiming for, which is essentially to fight Mayweather and Pacquiao like Ricky Hatton did, but hopefully do better. That once the Mayweather fight was off the table and he retired after Conor McGregor, that was, that was part of Khan's boxing soul gone. And then once Pacquiao made it clear that he wasn't going to fight Amir Khan, I don't think Khan had the motivation. And I'm not going to say that's why he didn't win against Kel. I think Kel Brooks a formidable opponent for Khan any year that they fight. But I think Kel definitely had a lot more to gain from this than Amir did. I think Amir's love for boxing died when he couldn't get the Mayweather and Pacquiao fights because there was nothing else for him to prove. You know, you can't say Crawford, Crawford is contemporary because, what, there's a year between them age-wise, right? But there's a whole Olympic cycle between them in terms of professional journey. So Amir Khan didn't come up, you know, at being a natural rival for Terence Crawford. Maybe these guys like Alexander and Tim Bradley, and we can look at the Bradley fight actually and say, I wonder what would have happened against Tim Bradley. Victor Ortiz. And so when you reel these names off, it's almost a, it's tragic that we never got to see these fights. But I think once Khan couldn't get the Mayweather and the Pacquiao fights, Boxing wasn't the same for him. He had done everything he wanted to do. And so the Kel thing right now is just a full stop on what's been a, a great career. And, you know, hats off to a British boxing great. How do I feel about Kel? Do I feel Kel was in that same position? Yes and no. I think Kel always had the thing of, if I can fight Amir Khan, I'm going to keep going. And you saw that. You saw that on Saturday night, he could keep going. Because that was it for him. That was his Everest. To know that he could sit next to Amir Khan and go, I beat you, was his Everest. All the other fights paid into insignificance for him now, apart from Sean Porter, maybe. You know, um, I can't even remember the Romanian guy he fought. Then it was Kevin Bizier, um, Frankie Gavin. Michael Zarafa, uh, DeLuca, all of these guys who aren't on Kel's level that he fought because he had a promoter that didn't believe in him. And so you wonder, did Kel ever fall in love with boxing at that level? Or was it all just a ploy? Or were they just steps to get to Amir Khan? Because he never really talked about... Until, until the post-fight press conference this weekend, Kel Brook had never really talked about fighting Floyd. Nor had he ever talked about fighting Manny Pacquiao. And for me, that will always be the difference between the two. And so it makes me believe that Khan was right. Maybe he peaked at 25. And all we've had since then is just a slow decline. As people refuse to help him out with this cash out fight apart from Kel Brook. So this is why I worry about Kel carrying on because I don't think Kel will find that motivation. I think Kel 
from now will realize what Amir Khan's realized. Once the thing you've been fighting for comes, you're a completely different man. Isn't the expression, the, the way to destroy a man is to give him exactly what he wants? Because then you have nothing to fight for, you have nothing to strive for. And normally you haven't planned for that life. You haven't, you haven't got the plan B, you haven't got the next goal lined up. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Like I said, I'd like to see Kel retire. And I'd like us to draw a line under this, this sort of era of boxing and saying these guys gave everything they could when they could. But just to summarise, the reason I've enjoyed the, the Khan-Brook build-up and fight is I, I, I was never really in a position because I wasn't that deep into the science of boxing to appreciate the rivalry between Antonio Tarver and Roy Jones. Because that has so many parallels to, to Brook and Khan. So if you think about Antonio Tarver and Roy Jones, who are essentially the same age, or well, pretty close in age, I should say, they first boxed each other as like 13-year-olds in, what, 1981-82? At the Florida Junior Olympics. It's the first time they boxed each other. I think they boxed each other at various tournaments since then. So that tells you that, you know, Tava was up there, but I think life got in Tava's way. So Tava was never considered for the 1988 Olympics. And Roy was. And that's when the whole Roy Jones thing happened in 1988. Meanwhile, what happened? Tava's in the background, grafting away. And he didn't get his chance to, to represent the United States in the Olympics until 1996, so eight years later. But once he turned pro, his only aim was to fight Roy Jones Jr., and he was hoping, just stay in the game long enough, Roy, and I'll get to you. And we pretty much know what happened when those two faced each other. So before doing this episode, I had to go back and revisit the, the Tarver Jones rivalry. Some of you guys who are new to the sport, it's worth going back to that. Simply because you get three fights. Uh, I think Roy won the first one and Tarver won the next two. The second fight's the best one because it's the most spectacular knockout you'll see. Um, classic Tava. And I think that's one of those shots that really did shock the world. But why I link it to the Khan Brook thing is this. When you box as youngsters, like schoolboys, like what, 12, 13 years old? And then I think probably a year or two later, Tava dropped out the sport because I think living in Tampa... Life got in the way, the streets called him, and so on and so forth. And it probably wasn't until the Olympics when he saw Roy go as far as he did. And then that, that fire lit in him, which said, well, he wasn't that much better than me when we were kids. Why can't I do that? Why can't I get a medal? And so that was the kickstart for Antonio Tarver's career. So Antonio Tarver's career has been the quest of chasing down Roy Jones, a bit like Evander Holyfield. So that, and also like Kell Brook in that the rivalry is one-sided in a lot of ways because Roy Jones will walk into the Hall of Fame and he'll be considered an all-time great and he's in many people's top 10 of all time. Antonio Tava is a respected boxer. He's respected by his peers. He's respected by those who love the sport, but he's not in anyone's top 10. But what he was able to do was channel all of his energy into one person, one objective, and he was just happy to beat Roy Jones Jr., and so, you know, 
we didn't get a trilogy this time because obviously the guys were 35 years old. But at least with Roy Jones and Tarver, we did get a trilogy of two guys who could really box, two real ring technicians. So if you've got time, by all means, make sure you try and catch, if not all of the trilogy, then the highlights from the trilogy. But I want to switch gears now and I want to talk about something else. And this was prompted by, by a tweet from Tris Dixon. And he was complaining, quite rightly too, that why is it boxing fans have to wait so late for the main attraction? Why do we still have to wait till 11 o'clock for a main event to happen? Because to be honest, everyone's kind of thinking, I've got stuff to do tomorrow. I've got, you know, you know, we'd like to be able to do stuff. And then if you're staying up for an American show, it's even later. But when you look at it logistically, there's, there's literally no barrier to bringing everything forward. Right? If we were honest, there's no barrier to bring everything forward. And when people talk about things like game changed or we're trying to redo how boxing is you know, presented and so no one's ever thought of that. Because for me, I think, I think the main event should be done by half 10 at the latest for me. It should be like football. Monday night football on Sky, I know by half 10 it's done. Yeah, I don't have to watch anything else after that. And that means I can get to bed and I can wake up fresh the next day and I'm okay with that. But what would it take to actually do that? I'd, to be honest, for, for televised cards, I'd like us to bring the number of bouts down. This idea that you need 9 or 10 bouts on a televised card in order to, to have a, a meaningful event, I think it's nonsense. I think 5 tops. And definitely 5 for a pay-per-view, right? So you have your main event, pay-per-view. Chief support, which should also be a fight of significance. You know, if it's not for a major world title in a big weight class, it can be for a major world title in a lower weight class or resolving a grudge match. And that leaves you with three fights, right? One of them should be a step-up fight for one of the golden prospects. And then you have a couple of build-up fights for your prospects. And just get, get things done that quickly. And I know people say, but what about all the other boxers? It's time we looked at having a satellite system. Uh, and this is what I was hoping Sky would do once they ended the relationship with Matchroom. I don't know how you do it. In fact, maybe I do. You take guys like Fraser Clark and all the other Olympians who will join. I'm not allowed to say the names yet, but you take all the other Olympians who have joined. You take someone like, uh, we'll take Adam Azima as an example, right? And you do all these shows around the country like, like they were supposed to do with Next Gen. That was the whole point of those Next Gen cards was to take fighters around the country and build them. Right? They should do that. And that should be a Wednesday night thing. You know, I, I genuinely thought Next Gen was going to be that until Hearn started just using it to advance the careers of his pet projects. And then it just became a bit of a, became a, bit of a joke. But I don't see why we don't have that. I, Yes, I want to see Fraser Clark make his debut on television, 100%. But his next four or five fights are of no interest to me because I know who he's going to fight pretty much. And we've seen those guys all before. We're not going to learn anything new. And that's true for all of these guys, the Azim brothers. Go on the road. You know, go on the road. 
if you if you're allowed to augment someone like Steve Wood's show or Steve Goodwin's show, by all means do that. If you can get down to Bournemouth and work with Steve Bendel, do that. If you can get down to Bristol and work with Sanagar, do that. Just tr get all these guys travelling. Get them fighting regularly. Get them visible around the country. Let them build their names up. And then when they're ready, you bring them onto TV. You should be on TV as a validation of your potential. And that means for boxing fans, when I tune in on a Saturday, I'm not going to get the rubbish. I'm not going to be able to moan. Because at the moment, we, we, we moan, right? Like, you see... Heavyweight prospect X, you can say something like Nick Campbell against Phil Williams, and you're just like, oh god, here we go again. Or cruiserweight prospect X against I was gonna say Moses Matovu, but I can't even remember the, any of the cruiserweight journeymen. Or someone against William Warburton. And there's only so many times you can really watch that before you go. I've seen these guys so many times before. Get that off my screen. So I'd like to I'd like someone to, to reboot and remodel the sport in the sense of let's have let's have a feeder system where these guys go and learn their trade like the old days and then you come on TV when you're kind of close to finishing off and what that means is we can have smaller cards on a Saturday and you can have a smaller card on a Wednesday and in some cases you might just have someone boxing off TV. But as long as they get the win and they get the performance, that's fantastic. Because Fraser Clark can help move tickets in Sheffield. He'll help move tickets in Derby and Nottingham. He can move tickets. Yeah. All those guys, the Azim brothers can move tickets in Reading. You know I mean? So all, all of these are options. If you look at Sky, you've got Brad Pauls. He can move tickets in the West Country. You know, Lions can move tickets in London. And... All of these are all of these viable options and it would free up room on Saturday nights to get more guys like Dan Aziz on. Guys who have won things like a British title and you know that they entertain. So I think that's probably the next evolution for me in terms of boxing broadcasting is that thing of let's have two tiers. The guys who are learning their trade and then the guys who are ready. Because I don't want to hear so-and-so is still learning on the job. I don't want to hear that. Um, you know, who, who, who wants to go into a barbershop and say, look, you got the trainee today. It's like, no, 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 no. If I'm paying the same price as everyone else, I want the experienced barber. I don't want the trainee. My kid's hair can be cut by the trainee. Yeah, but not mine. And I think that's, that's the approach we need to take with boxing because this, this idea of just filling a card for the sake of it doesn't quite work for me at the moment. One thing I do want to touch on is we're less than 48 hours post Brooke Khan, right? Let's be real. Like, we're not even two full days away from it. And you go on Twitter and there's anger. People are angry at Dillian for not signing. People are angry at Chris Eubank Jr. for calling for a Kell Brook fight. People are just angry. And, and the thing is, I don't even suspect it's real anger. It's almost like people believe that the only way to be a boxing fan on Twitter now is to take the most extreme view and just pay, spend ages arguing it. Right, here's what's crazy. Deontay Wilder, no one knows if he's going to retire or not retire. Now people are trying to rip his record apart, like saying what's his second best win or what's Golovkin's second best win. You've still got guys going Golovkin beat Canelo. You're like, factually he didn't. Like in the real world, Golovkin has never beaten Canelo, right? And the real world is in which all of us try and live. 
And I just never understand where this comes from with boxing fans, where you assume that the guy that doesn't agree with you is your enemy. Like, wow, like, pull yourselves back from the brink. All you can ever do in life is make your point. It's, it's not my job to believe it or agree with it. And just like it's not your job to listen and believe everything I say, and I'm okay with that. Just, guys, stop being so negative about it. It's, it's the antithesis of what makes the sport really great. When you walk into gyms and there's that honesty and that respect, we may come from different gyms, we may come from different camps, we may come from different backgrounds, but in this ring, we have to get along. You know, and once we've done our work, there's a respect because there's a trust. You're not going to take the piss and I'm not going to take the piss. And I think, I was going to say that people who've never experienced that are the worst culprits, but I don't even think that's true because boxers are equally as bad. And I don't know what it is about the sport. I don't know if it's that it just attracts the, the insecure and the bitter. I don't know. But I wish it would stop. And I think as boxing outlets, we have a responsibility to manage the content we put out there. Because sometimes you can draw this sort of energy and make it acceptable. No, it's not my thing. The, and look, people can pull me up and say, on New Age, you got pretty trolly at times. And I hold my hand up and say, yeah, I did. But I didn't, I was still learning the game. And I think you'll find that there's been a progression over the years as I've become more and more measured as I understand the sport. I understand this platform, podcasting. And I also understand the effect that both can have on people who are consuming the product. And I try and, I try and walk a line somewhere in the middle, but unafraid to stick it to people who deserve it. One of the things, just thinking about the fight we build up, did we make the most of Terence Crawford? Like, Terence Crawford's a future Hall of Famer, regardless of how his career goes from here on in. He's a future Hall of Famer. And he was in the United Kingdom for a week. He had no duties to perform other than to be here as a fan. And I don't believe we made the most of having Crawford here. Uh, it just feels like a massive missed opportunity to, to, just to have someone that great in this country. He could have been one of the people as one of the three Sky Pundits, all of that stuff. Like maybe, you know, use him in fight week, have him go to some of the local clubs and maybe he did this behind the scenes, but it would have been nice to see. I think that, that that's probably the only open goal I think Sky missed out on. But like I said, I'm splitting hairs here, but I do feel like it's a massive missed opportunity because I just realized Crawford's back in the US now. <laughs> maybe he's got fight business to take care of. But I, I do think that was a missed opportunity. Um, now that he's back in America, you know, the focus will be on, what, Shakur Stevenson now? And he's fighting Oscar Valdez. Things that we can't do in this country, right? You've got Shakur Stevenson versus Oscar Valdez, and this is relatively early in Shakur Stevenson's career. Like, if they were Brits, they wouldn't have fought for another five or seven years. This is what we're getting wrong. This is 100% what we're getting wrong. You know, at some point I have a moan about the training in this country, but it's the lack of balls to make fights happen. And you can think of all of them. Like, you know, look at look at the nightmare it took to get Denzel Bentley versus Lionel Sadofi. We should have had this fight already. You know, 
We should have had this fight already. We should have a Craig Richards versus Bo. We should have had that already. We should have Craig Richards versus Dan Aziz. We should have Jermaine Brown versus Zach Shelley. We should have Nick Campbell versus Johnny Fisher. We shouldn't have to um and ah over whether these fights happen. They should just happen as a matter of course. Like you would in the amateurs. Although now the amateurs are becoming like the pro game where guys are picking and choosing their opponents. This model that people have of saying, once you have a defeat, your damaged goods is insane. Because if you imagine, in every fight you want a winner and a loser, draws don't really work for any of us. In every fight you want a winner and a loser. So why punish the loser? But we do that. We punish the loser in the same way that we crucify women who have a lot of sexual partners and call them slats, which doesn't make any sense to me. Because if the one commodity that men desire the most is sex, it has to be supplied by someone. So when you start to disrespect like the supply, it becomes a problem. So as a fan, when you're disrespecting the guys who, who take risky fights and lose... You know, like people say, oh, look at Deontay Wilder. He lost to Fury twice, arguably three times. And I'm like, but he gave you the fight. Fans like that make boxers scared to fight because as I keep telling you, these guys are insecure. So that comes back to the whole toxicity thing. Be careful what you wish for because a lot of this avoiding defeat comes from the fans being toxic on social media. The last thing I want to touch on, uh, just to shine some light on an initiative a friend of mine's involved in that thing, is newsworthy because it's offering a different model. So, about 10 years ago, I used to train a, a young man called Courtney Tuck. Um, was a part-time amateur boxer because he, he had a business he was running, so he, he did events and so on and so forth. Lovely man. Like, lovely man, sort of guy who... I don't think you can ever say a bad word about him. I don't think you find anyone that says a bad word about him. You know those sorts of people who... I, I don't know how people manage to just be good human beings all the time because I have an edge to me simply because of the way I was raised. I'll always have an edge. But he's just one of those guys. Never heard a bad word said about him. I don't think I ever will. Decent enough amateur. I wish he had trained more. He probably would have... He'd have done really well. But, you know, boxer 75 kilos. Lovely man. So disappears from the sport for a while and I think you've probably seen the clips of Chris Congo and Jamie Shakiva being out in Spain and so he was behind that and so he's behind a company called Disturbing, Disturbing Sports and it's that kind of full service, kind of like a, like a nascent 25-8 management but I think with better people at the helm. And so their first client that you'll probably know is Jamie Shakiva. I know they do some work with whole nine management as well. So that's Chris Congo included in that. And so you're going to see a lot of that around March 26th. I'm intrigued to see what direction they choose to go in. Because I had a conversation with Courtney and it's been a while since we spoke, which is a shame on my part, actually. But we're talking boxing and he said something really interesting and it, it changed my thinking about what my role in the sport is. And he said he got into this not for any monetary gain, but he saw what what happened to Daryl after the Zach Parker fight. And his view was boxers should never have to go through that. And I couldn't disagree with him. And he said to me, and this is what he said to me, and he was right. He said, Terry, you've been on all sides of this. 
you understand boxing top to bottom, you know the boxers, and you also understand business. And he said, he said it to me, he said, it's your duty to be on that front line advising and helping boxers. And I'd never thought of it in those terms. And I'd, I'd always like being, and I still do, I like being the guy in the background where people can come and talk to me if they need advice. I don't like to push myself in that sense, simply because I don't know if I could fulfill all the commitments required of me. So I don't necessarily want to put myself in a position where I'm setting myself up to fail. And that's, a, that's an issue on my part. But the more we talked about this, the more I realized Number one, boxers don't do enough to get the right brains around them as they start planning their career. And that's, that's on them. If they're not prepared to go looking for smart people, they're going to get taken advantage of, right? First things first. Second thing, I probably don't do enough in terms of sharing what I know with people and preventing them from getting taken advantage of. I try my best, but sometimes I don't know where the problems are in order to offer solutions. But one of the things I did say to myself was, I need to do more. What that looks like, don't know yet, but I definitely need to do more. And if you're looking at a five-year horizon, I should be a bit more visible in that sense, God willing. But I just wanted to shout him out because a lot of times we talk about stuff and it's easy to criticize and it's easy to throw rocks. It's very few individuals who stand up and say I'm going to do something to try and make a difference Dean White's shown that he's willing to put something behind us with his boxing heist promotions and now I'm seeing Courtney Tuck and his guys doing their thing so follow them uh, disturbing sports at Instagram if you want to follow I think it's going to be an interesting journey with Jamie Shakiva because I keep telling people if Jamie takes this seriously he's going to be very hard to deal with. Like you'd put, you'd put, like, let, let me give you a sense of context of how confident I'd be with Jamie Shakiva. I would put him in with Dempsey McKean. I would put him in with Johnny Fisher. I would put him in with Fabio Wardley. I would put him in with Nick Campbell. I'd put him in with absolutely anyone with under seven fights. Six, in a six one eight rounder, I'd put him in. He just has a style that's very, very hard to combat if you're not a well-rounded boxer. So they've got a good prospect on their hands. They just need to keep him disciplined and focused. And I like the fact that they've taken all the stresses away from him. So they've hooked him up in nutritionists. They'll take care of the media side of things. They'll take care of the ticket selling. All of that stuff has been taken care of so Jamie can focus. And now he's just got to deliver those A1 performances that he's got the talent to do. And you know, I mean, it's up to that team of Ben Davidson and so forth to make sure that Jamie executes on his talent. But I just wanted to shout them out because I like seeing people doing good things in boxing. And to a lot of you guys listening who think I'm on the sidelines, but I've got skill set and something valuable that I can offer. Hey, don't hide, man. Like, let's, let's, let's all pull together. And let's find ways of making an impact. Because remember... Once you make an impact, you become part of the story too. Now, I probably think that's a sensible point to draw a line under Monday Mass. I've probably ran on a bit longer than I planned to. In case people are interested, I'm now off to, to finish the second half of my workout now. So floor presses in the morning, work my way up to 140 kilos on the floor press. Um, I did some machine shoulder presses just to loosen up, so four sets of 12 on that. Now go ahead to the gym and work on the upper back because a lot of people don't realize. Here's a training tip. Your pressing motions are only ever as good as 
your upper back strength. And I've struggled with upper back strength for a long time. Just poor, poor genetics and poor training programming on my part, to be honest. So I'm going to go and work on the upper back now and a bit of abs and some core stability stuff, you know, some anti-rotation work. Yeah, the usual. Keep myself lithe and nimble as I head into my, my middle ages. God. And on that note, guys, I'm going to sign off and say, listen, have a great day. And as always, you'll hear from me soon. Goodbye. What? What are you saying? You know when I've knocked you out? I'll fucking knock you out as well. Dickhead. You fucking gobshite.